Welcome to episode number two of Down the Rabbit Hole. My name is Rafael Ruiz. Hello, Carl. How are you? I'm fine, Rafael. How are you this lovely morning? We are great. Ready for starting the second part of our first topic. Aha. Uh -huh. Time travel. Time travel. And this time, our second show is all the science facts. Oh. All the science behind it. All about the science. Yes. We're going to discuss about it. And of course, it's very important, your feedback... So leave us your comments in the comment section of the note show, uh, show notes and it will be really, really great mm. to interact with you. To get some feedback. Yeah. So time travel. Okay. Let's go. Let's just get right into it because it's quite some. Okay. Would you like to start something? I think we should start with some very basic, like Albert Einstein. Albert Right. Theories from Albert Einstein, because they define, actually, yeah. uh, our modern understanding. That is true. I mean, he um, he came up with this original idea, uh -huh. where he basically came up with a concept of space-time, which is the three dimensions that we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, plus time. Plus one more, yes. Yeah, and he said that these four dimensions are interlinked and that um, that um, as you if you take an object and accelerate it um, as it accelerates its mass starts to increase yes and as you um, move it to, towards a significant fraction of the speed of light its mass carries on increasing and you have to pour more energy in more to be able to move that mass to make it carry on accelerating mm -hmm. and in fact he took it to a kind of a logical conclusion which was that um, if you could um, get to the speed of light which is 186,000 miles per second in mm -hmm. a vacuum that in order to do that not only would that require infinite energy mm -hmm. that's exactly one of the biggest uh, points exactly yeah but the object would also at that point have infinite mass infinite mass which mm -hmm. is pretty both of these things are a little difficult to achieve i think mm -hmm. and what he also stated was that as you accelerate uh, to significant fractions of the speed of light the uh, perceived uh, time Um, on the object actually remains constant. It remains normal to the the passenger on the, let us say, some kind of spaceship or something. Uh -huh. So as far as the people on the spaceship are concerned, if they look at their wristwatch or something, it just will runs normal just works for them. Normal, but in fact, time is slowing down for them. Yes. And if you could get to the speed of light, which we've already stated Einstein said was impossible. Mm -hmm. Because of this thing of Because infinite mass and infinite speed. Requiring infinite energy, energy sorry, yeah. to, to get there, then time would actually stop. And what Einstein actually said was that if you actually were able to exceed the speed of light, time would actually start travelling backwards. At the same time, he said, this was impossible. Mm -hmm. It wasn't allowed for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, this uh, this is one of the base 
uh, ideas hmm. for certain stories and movies, actually. Of course. For time traveling and uh, the famous idea of the twin from Einstein, you know. Yeah, the twin paradox. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Or the grandfather paradox, mm-hmm, same mm-hmm. thing. And actually, when Einstein came out with this idea, people just could not get their heads around it, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> Indeed. And in fact, a number of experiments were carried out only later, actually, because when Einstein came up with this, really the technology wasn't around to actually try and prove it or disprove it. Try to make a test, even. Yeah. And eventually, uh, one of the earliest tests that was actually able to be done was after the advent of atomic clocks. So Mm -hmm. atomic clocks are based on the vibration of atoms, certain kinds of atoms, cesium, for example, and they're very predictable and very constant. And there was one experiment, for example, that was done where two atomic clocks were synchronized, obviously, with each other on the ground, Mm -hmm. and then one remained on the ground, and the other one was put in a supersonic jet and sent off on a long journey and was eventually brought back to the its twin clock on the ground. And what they found was that the clock, the atomic clock that had been running at high speed through the Earth's atmosphere, was actually slightly slower than the clock on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So for the first time, that was the first hint that actually Einstein was correct. And mm-hmm. there have been other experiments done. Yes, of course, it never happened to go to the point of accelerating even a fraction of... These are just the kind of speeds we that can, we can reach. Which is not very much, and yeah. yet at the, at the it was atomic shown, level, yeah. there was enough there. And there were more experiments like these, you that, know, like that the one uh, was mentioned of the building even. That's right. Top of the building, bottom of the building. Atomic as simple clock. as that, yeah. yes. And this was to do with the... Again, um, proving or supporting Einstein's idea that um, mass distorts space-time. So so the clock, the atomic clock that was at the bottom of the building was nearer to the mass of the Earth than the atomic clock at the top top of of the building. building. And that was enough for them to actually detect the Mm -hmm. difference between the two clocks. Exactly. Amazing. And just like these, even more experiments... Uh, started to happen, like uh, the Russian astronaut Sergei uh, Avdeyev, mm. and he was found to be one fiftieth of a second younger after he was uh, staying in orbit for seven hundred and forty-eight days. That's right. I mean, the the astronaut thing was not so much an experiment as a kind yes. of a consequence of what he was doing. Based on uh-huh. based on Einstein's theories, he would have been one fiftieth of a second younger. Yes, it, obviously they had no way of actually figuring that Fear out it completely. By, but by prodding him, yeah. <laughs> you know, taking a blood sample, that wasn't yeah. going to do anything. But but still, if when you are talking about science and precision and mm. being able to measure something, if you say one fiftieth of a second. Mm. It's already something representative. That's quite a long time. Actually. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. In terms of, and this was seven hundred and forty-eight days in space. I in think, space, and I think I think that was on the Mir space station. Uh-huh. I think 
the one that the Russian one that preceded the International Space Station. I think I could be wrong there. But uh, however it is, uh, this is also another interesting point uh, in the fact that in space we have this effect. It's just an effect of traveling yeah. at speed yeah. for an extended period of time. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and even though the speeds, again, are relatively small, mm-hmm. um, I mean, orbital velocity is about, I think, 17,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is obviously nothing like an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, but the effects, it is a continuum of effect it it doesn't kick mm-hmm. in like a turbo charger it's 40 percent of the speed of light it begins as soon as you start moving uh-huh yeah so it is a constantly increasing effect and it can be noticed at very low velocities and there was the the other experiment that was done using a particle accelerator and what a bunch of scientists did was they took two particles and they kept one particle in a trap stationary, and they got another particle and accelerated it round the uh, ring of the accelerator. Uh-huh. And what they found was that they were able to push that up to an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, because it's just a particle, mm-hmm. um, by pushing energy into the accelerator. Mm-hmm. When they actually compared the decay, the radioactive decay of the particle that had been accelerated... And the particle that was in a trap, they found that the decay of the particle that had been accelerated was reduced, which means, again, it was displaying this effect of time dilation. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And, of course, all these take us to a more recent as well uh, person, Kip Thorne. Kip Thorne, yeah, he is. Uh, he is one of the in the twentieth century. He's still alive today, but mm-hmm. uh, in in the twentieth century and still in the twenty first century, he's regarded as way up there in terms of the pantheon of mm-hmm. um, physicists of note. Mm-hmm. And he um, came up with this very interesting idea, which is. Uh, more directly related to our subject of time travel as we've come to understand it in kind of science fiction movies and so on. Yeah. Um, just going back to Einstein's um, uh, segment that we just mm-hmm. covered, of course, this is t- time. We're all time travelers, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. We're moving in time, right? Unfortunately, we all, runs. we're all going in one direction and yeah. we're kind of sharing it. But it's a shared experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, by theoretically building a very, very fast spaceship, you could separate yourself out or get a bunch of people to separate themselves out from that shared experience mm-hmm. and potentially by, I don't know, accelerating to half the speed of light and maintaining that for 10 years. If they came back to the yeah. Earth, they might find that everybody they know is now dead. Dead, yeah. (laughs) So that is a form of time travel, but what uh, Einstein clearly stated was that time travel into the future is clearly achievable 
because mm-hmm. you just apply this. just applies yeah. theory, time dilation. Mm-hmm. But he said once you've made that journey, there's no way back. Uh-huh. And so he um, said that traveling to the past is not possible. But coming back to Kip Thorne, Kip Thorne actually conceived of a way it may be done, and what he suggested, and this was from a conversation with. Carl Carl Sagan, Sagan. the cosmologist, Mm -hmm. Carl Sagan wrote a book, I think it was in the 70s, called Contact. Which uh, turned out into a movie that I'm sure everybody knows. With Jodie Foster, obviously. And in that uh, movie, uh, we received a message with instructions to build this machine. Yes. And in fact, this machine created a wormhole on the Earth, a controlled wormhole, and it allowed um, uh, Jodie Foster's character to travel to another another star in a capsule. Now, that all came about, this kind of, uh, this concept of this machine uh, came about from Carl Sagan chewing the fat with Kip Thorne one day, and he said, you know, I've got this problem in this science fiction novel (laughs) I'm writing. I need... Get, I need a way to get a human being <laughs> from the Earth to the Vega star system, which is 20 light years away. Vega is a, a real s- star, uh, yeah. right? It's up there. Uh, you can go out and see it any night of the... Uh-huh. On a clear night. Clear night, yeah. He said to Kip Thorne, you know, I've got this problem. I need to get a human being from the Earth to Vega and back in one day. How can I do that? And Kip Thorne genius that he is, went away and said, I'll think about it. He came back with this idea, and this idea was um, that if you could um, get a wormhole, uh, and on the other end of that wormhole is another wormhole, Mm -hmm. the connection between the two is like a shortcut through space-time. Because it's a shortcut... Because um, be- because it is, instead of traveling on the surface of space-time, you're going like between, In between. a fold. Uh-huh. Einstein's prohibition on not being able to go faster than the speed of light doesn't apply. And what he actually uh, calculated on paper was that the character in the story would only have to travel one kilometre into the mouth of the wormhole and the Because of this folding, yeah. Because of this folding, in moments, the vessel that the human occupant was in would appear at Vega. Yes. And it would take moments, and it would only have travelled one physical kilometre in space to do Mm -hmm. that. And... He sold this idea to Carl Sagan, who put it into his movie. movie. Mm -hmm. And the machine, in fact, created one end of the wormhole, and the other end was at Vega. And Vega, and then Uh, they dropped. And then they dropped the object to fall into the wormhole throat. Now, what um, Kip Thorne also said to Carl Sagan was, well, there's a catch. The collapsing, right? The collapsing of the wormhole yeah. throat. What um, Kipthorne said was that physics, as we understand it, as soon as a wormhole forms, 
physics as we know it will collapse it. And there's only one way I can think of to keep the wormhole throat open, and that is to pour uh, exotic matter, negative energy, into the wormhole throat, mm-hmm. and, and that should hold it open. Now, this thing called exotic matter or negative energy um, is often referred to as uh, the Casimir effect, yes, uh, which is a, a, a known thing. Um, my understanding is we can only produce tiny, tiny amounts, amounts of, it, yeah. of this stuff because we don't, we just haven't got the physics mm-hmm. understanding. But to actually maintain this wormhole would require a huge, huge amounts huge, of exotic matter. Just we can't even conceive of mm-hmm. how much. In fact, some people have said that in order to get this amount of matter, you might have to uh, set up your your experiment by a black hole to, to be actually, able yeah to actually somehow be able to tap into some energy mm-hmm. source that had enough energy to drive this exotic matter mm-hmm. generator and this theory of exotic matter is being used even now by google i, I you told yeah. me that yes uh, they have this game many maybe you know about it it's called ingress i i've heard and they use the term of exotic matter for that actually power portals. Right. So seems that the people from Google are also kind Into of this, uh, right? well informed about physics and yeah. these kind of situations because the game itself is about manipulating exotic matter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Produced by certain places on Earth uh-huh. and captured by your phone. <laughs> Those phones will do anything, won't they? Right. <laughs> well, it's certainly interesting that people yeah. are kind of using these ideas in uh, everyday. You know what's the interesting part there? Mm-hmm. That they are getting into the mind of people or introducing into the mass public these ideas, these ideas of an exotic matter. Yes, which we know that it could be possible, but it's. Sometimes it seems like a whole experiment of a massive people, you know, like social a, conditioning or yes. engineering or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know, there are those, shall we say, conspiracy theories. Yeah, once again, <laughs> <laughs> about um, that a lot of science fiction um, is actually somehow part of a larger plan of softening up people's kind of psyche. Mm-hmm. To be more receptive to the ideas of and certain events that are going to be coming, things soon. that may be coming soon. But that may be the subject of yeah, another for the another one, yeah, another podcast. And also back a little bit to Einstein because there was an interesting letter sent to a friend's relative. Yeah, that's right. Uh, who had died, and he was saying something like, "For us physicists, believe the separation. Be, uh, for us physicists." Believe the separation between past, present, and future is only an, only an illusion, although a convincing one. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a really interesting and thought-provoking mm-hmm. thing for him to say, because yeah. what he, he talked about it more, and what he said was that, effectively, what he believed, and this was later in his life that yeah. he kind of uh, expanded these ideas, which was that your our past... And our future exist simultaneously. Simultaneous. It's almost like a continuum of existence, but 
somehow the human consciousness is only aware of the moment that we're in. And this is our experience of existence is in a moment, but our past and our future are at the same time. Exist at the same time. It's, It's always with us. And this is why he was writing this letter of consolation to his friend's relative saying that actually I'm not that sad that he's gone because he's actually still, he's still here. here. Oh. Right? We just, we've moved beyond that moment. Yeah, and what's called the idea of everything forever. Yeah, the, the, he, he, Einstein didn't coin that phrase, somebody mm-hmm. else did. Somebody but, else, yes. But it's a kind of a nice way of looking at it that's kind of nothing ever dies really. Yes. It's just our perception uh-huh. of these things. And uh, I think it, it's time to even move to to a, another, I know, personal hero of yours. That's right, yeah. Yeah, personal hero of mine is this um, physicist Richard Feynman, who's an American. He's actually dead now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a real character. He played the bongo drums. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just into all kinds of stuff. He loved jazz music. Uh-huh. Um, he was such a character, and I would recommend anybody um, reading a very accessible book of his called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And he was actually a major um, uh, influence on the development of quantum physics, uh-huh. quantum mechanics. He conceived a lot of it. And in fact, he once said... And bearing in mind that he's almost like one of the, um, you know, the uh, bearers of this idea to the world about the quantum world, he actually said, "If anybody says to you that they understand quantum physics, they don't understand quantum physics." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, the thing about Richard uh, Feynman was he came up with this idea to try and explain time. Mm-hmm. the time we experience. And it led to a very interesting set of ideas that have, again, kind of become common currency in the world. Mm-hmm. We'll come to that in a moment. But he actually came up with this idea called the sum over histories. That sounds a little bit strange, but yeah. but what he, what he was saying was that any possible event in the universe – in our lives, mm-hmm. shall we say, if we bring it back down to Earth, he said that for any event, there were, in fact, infinite probabilities of what could happen. Mm-hmm. But that if you assigned a probability, like a chance that it could happen a certain way, uh, basically there were only a few probabilities that, that could that would really happen in this universe with the physical laws that we've got, and that the further you move away from that, basically what he said was you, you could add those probabilities together and it would come to zero. In other words, it just isn't going to happen. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we were discussing it earlier, and you said uh-huh. about, you know, you drop an apple, and one of these yes. outlandish possibilities was... What it will say. fall down or it will stop. <laughs> Halfway to the ground. Halfway right? to the ground or it will go up. Exactly. Now, what, what uh, Richard Feynman was getting at is that that is within the range of... of possibilities. But it, 
according the chances to of it happening is almost zero. Infinitely small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the fairly obvious thing is it's going to hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's how this universe, universe works. And the laws we know right the now. The laws that we know work. And uh, basically what he said was that um, he what he was allowing for was multiple... Universes, universes, multiple existences, and in fact, he really started uh-huh. the uh, idea that is now called, or was called, the many worlds theories. People talk about the multiverse uh-huh. uh, and all this kind of parallel universe, parallel universe, universe so dim- the, so, dimensions, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, so effectively, and in fact, string theory, which is the the current best possible um, path towards unifying um, the world of general relativity, which is the big stuff that we see, and quantum world, the big and the small, the micro and the macro, Mm -hmm. uh, string theory, um, still hasn't figured it out yet, but it's the best, best deal in town at the moment, although we still haven't figured it all out. Uh, string theory actually includes mm-hmm. multiple dimensions up to something like 15 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the three dimensions that we live in plus time are kind of there, but then there's all these other tiny dimensions that are curled up that currently we can't detect and we can't... What shape uh, our universe as it is? Well, that potentially represent this plus other possibilities. Yeah. So... Some interesting things there, of course, the this idea of multiple universes and multiple mm-hmm. timelines and mm-hmm. so on and so forth is quite fascinating. And uh, to finish with this, uh, let's say, scientific uh, explanation about time and <laughs> dilatation and so on, we have this thing of uh, uh, saying of uh, Stephen Hawking. That's right. That chronology... Di- Chronology Protection Conjecture or Chronology Protection uh, Agency. That's right. Which uh, states that it seems... uh, This is a quote from Stephen Hawking. Hawking. It seems that there is a chronology protection agency which prevents the appearance of closed time-like curves and so makes the universe safe for historians. That's right. So kind of what he's saying is that you can't You can't change the past. You can't. So the history books... It's okay to carry on printing history books because it anyway, it's not going to change. It isn't going to change, and, and and even if you could change it, presumably the history books would spontaneously re-edit themselves. Yes, and, uh, themselves. So the, you don't need yeah. to worry about that. And, and of course, there's this other this other idea that if it was possible to go back and change some event, that in fact the universe would split at yeah. that point. And the universe, let us say you went back and killed your grandfather, mm-hmm. the universe would split on that probability Point. or possibility, yeah. and the universe that you live in is the one where your grandfather still exists. Exactly. But, but there's potentially another universe where he doesn't, and neither do you. And neither do you. Quite interesting. And after all this, <laughs> what would be like a conclusion? Time travel is possible. Well, would it be possible in the future? I don't know. 
it's something hard, right? It's very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean... We don't really have... We'd all like it to exist. Oh, we? we would love to exist. There is so much... Um, I think it is as much a philosophical tool, isn't it, for mm -hmm. exploration of ideas as anything else. So the world would be a poorer place without all that science fiction literature Spiciness. that uses exactly that uses time travel to explore ideas and uh -huh. what ifs and alternate histories and so on and so forth so whether time travel is well, we know time travel into the future is possible, possible with certain limitations yes and we time, mentioned them before it's time travel into the past and in fact stephen hawking said if time travel is possible Where are all the time tourists from the future? Exactly. Very good point. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you might think, well, yes, maybe they are doing it. Maybe they are traveling, but they're just really careful, careful about, about it. Careful about it, yeah. And they don't want to stick out, which, which, you know, is what you would expect, really, because it's hard to imagine you're ever going to be able to buy a time machine on Amazon. <laughs> Although they'd like to think they might be able to offer that at some point, yeah. or on eBay. So, if it was possible, you would you would expect that the resources we required would be staggering. Enormous, yeah. So this kind of thing is never going to be in the hands of. Yes. So we can say that right now, at this very moment, it's not really possible it's to impossible. make them travel. Yeah, it's impossible for us. Yes. Um, if it happened in the future. We don't really know. We don't right know. Now. And in fact, as a kind of a conclusion, there is a very interesting book that mm -hmm. uh, people might like to read. And it's actually called How to Build a Time Machine by a physicist, uh, Paul Davis. And um, You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Amazon. And it is not so expensive no, if you no, go no. for a paperback. And he actually discusses a number of ways based on our current understanding of how we might build not one time machine. He actually comes up with a few different ways of doing it. Unfortunately, although they're based on our understanding, what is actually required to do it at the moment is beyond our capability. Mm -hmm. But kind of what he's saying is, theoretically, it might be possible. We're just nowhere near being able to do it yet because we don't understand enough. Exactly. So now, uh, something interesting and important here. Okay. If you have any comments, uh -huh. if you have your own theories, if you want to share some knowledge with us, please do it. I think it's going to be important not only for us, mm. for everybody. And let's enter into this A communication yeah. feedback. Yeah, because we would not, we don't regard ourselves as experts. We're not scientists. We're just two interested guys. This yes. kind of thing. The things we're talking about are things that fascinate us. Yes. And interest us, and we're trying to understand these things as much as anybody. And it's going to be very important your input and your feedback, and that we enter in a discussion into commenting and discussing ideas. And of course, we're open to suggestions for of future topics. Bi binary podcasts. Yes, exactly. So, thank you very much for listening to this second episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Rafa. My name is Rafael Riz, and we will talk next week. Excellent. I'm looking forward. Yes. See you then. All names, sounds, logos, and other related items are owned by their respective trademark and copyright holders. This podcast is a production of Darkmind Radio. Go to darkmindradio.com 
to find out more. All rights reserved, Darkmind Radio, 2015.